a fire on the mountain burning out of control. The skies set ablaze in all its red and gold. The temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. We gotta turn this ship around before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where we are also archived for your binge listening pleasure. I'm looking for a sponsor, so if there are any listeners out there who want to sponsor this show, let us know here at WKXL AM and FM. We'd be happy to feature you as a sponsor of Off the Record with Paul Hodes. We're also available on Google and Stitcher and iTunes for you 21st century folks with fast thumbs, iPads, iPhones, Samsungs, and all that. And uh, I am joined in the studio by Chris Ryan on a beautiful New Hampshire summer day for some Off the Record chatter. And I think I want to start by talking about some state politics. Rather than going after Donald Trump, as I usually do, and of course there are plenty of reasons to do that, let's talk about Trump light. Let's talk about Governor Sununu, the, 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 the front man for a Donald Trump type approach to politics, whose true colors are being displayed. First of all, he suffered a bit of a political defeat. He nominated the attorney general, an arch-conservative lawyer, uh, Gordon McDonald, who has served well as attorney general and who was supported uh, by many bipartisan attorneys and others to be John Broderick, the chief justice Jay of Sertikowski. the Supreme Court. Yeah, names in the legal circles that are well-respected. Democrats. They, they are Democrats. And Gordon McDonald, of course, had a prior history, prior to his becoming AG, as, as quite an outspoken, uh, somewhat partisan, uh, right-wing advocate, including um, standing in opposition to women's reproductive rights and other matters of grave concern to Democrats. Now, Democrats now control the governor's executive council. And let's remember, folks, here in New Hampshire, the governor's office, while prominent, is pretty weak. The governor's power is circumscribed by the requirement that appointments uh, and contracts in excess of $5,000 come before the executive council for consideration. So in due course, the nomination of Gordon uh, McDonald uh, came before the executive council and three Democratic executive councilors who now control the majority on the executive council voted against the governor's pick for the Supreme Court, citing both his inexperience as a jurist, i.e. none, and uh, also his uh, right-wing record uh, which the uh, Democratic majority said uh, would hamper um, the ability of the New Hampshire Supreme Court to act fairly in a nonpartisan way on important issues that came before it. The, the, um, uh, the, go the governor 
that, that I was, think it's for you. Yeah, it was that was for me. That yeah. was my phone. That that I'll tell you, and I'll tell you who it is. That was my boy Max calling from California because his car died. He needs a new car, and he's in the middle of trying to find a car. <laughs> and I'm helping him yeah. doing the internet research to figure out a car that he can afford, which is nothing but uh, you know, like a Pinto. I, well, I sing a song with my band uh, Calamity Jane called Thousand Dollar Car. And uh, I can't, I can't repeat all the lyrics here on the air, but it goes: a thousand dollar car, it ain't worth nothing. A thousand dollar car, it ain't worth. Mm. Might as well take your thousand dollars and go ahead and set fire to it. So you get the, you get the gist. So, but back to Governor Sununu, who doesn't drive thousand dollar cars. He responded essentially by going on a veto rampage, upping his veto count to twenty three vetoes so far. Uh, The latest round included bills that would have prohibited employers from using an applicant's credit history in making hiring decisions. Um, It would have put some limits on what employers could ask them about applicants for their salary histories. It would have, uh, there were bills about campaign finance reform. There were bills about transparency in in government, uh, among other things. And uh, he just went on essentially a veto rampage that seems to me to be kind of childish. I mean, uh, a governor can't expect that everything he does is going to be approved of, especially when there is an opposition party in control of the executive council. Um, And uh, I don't know how to take this governor's veto rampage. What do you think, Chris Ryan? I think we have a situation where there's hyper-partisanship on display at the State House in Concord. And this is something you know, we really haven't seen during my time covering politics in New Hampshire, which uh, dates back uh, to year 2000. And um, it used to be that whether it was a Republican or a Democrat, you know, everybody was pretty much in the image of John Lynch or um, Judd Gregg, an individual who, above all else, sought to work with the opposition for the betterment of the people of the state of New Hampshire. He, and Washington, D.C. was right. Washington, D.C. That was different. He vetoed the state budget. He did. And yeah, this after Democrats took out you know, two poison pills in um, failing medical leave insurance and also... Um, a capital gains tax. So they took those things out, um, have a 0.2% increase in um, the business tax, which is actually just kind of keeping it in line with um, where it had been uh, prior to this uh, year. And they also are complaining about the fact there's too much spending in this budget. And because of the current revenues, they set spending in line with those. And they can't expect that revenues down the line are going to be as good. And so therefore, their Democrats are creating an environment where there's going to be an income tax. But each budget comes with um, no guarantees moving forward in regards to future budgets. He vetoed some really interesting electoral reform legislation because what he vetoed, here's an interesting thing. Right now, if you have an LLC, you can apparently contribute to state elections through your LLC without hitting individual campaign contribution limits. 
And uh, there was a bill to close that loophole in the interest of fairness, in the interest of transparency. Senator Feltus's bill. Senator and those two, Feltus. Senator Feltus and, and Governor Sununu, are just They're going, locked in bitter yeah, right. opposition. Of course they are, because Dan uh, uh, yesterday said that he was exploring a run for governor. There are a number of people exploring a run for governor, and so we expect the political haymaking to hit. But your larger point um, is is really, really interesting, which is that... It appears that under Governor Sununu, we have seen the end of a long-standing New Hampshire political tradition. And that tradition has certainly been in place for both Democrats and Republicans, has been one of an effective functioning in as bipartisan a way as reasonably possible, um, even given divided government. And, and the part- I think this is new in this particular term for Sununu as well. The last term was uh, a term in which Governor Sununu, in my view, struck a more um, independent tone. He looked to distance himself from Donald Trump. Uh, he was uh, looking to be the the people's governor of the state of New Hampshire, similar to you know, what we talked about with Lynch and Hassan and Shaheen. And this term, he has taken a, a hard right turn. And instead of getting out in front of the budget and saying, look at all the great things we've done in my budget, similarly to what uh, Governor Hassan did, um, even after she vetoed the budget, and the Republicans created that budget, um, the opportunity existed for Governor Sununu to, instead of being blamed for the uh, various funding shortfalls and issues that may occur, he had an opportunity to get out ahead of the Democratic budget and say, this is my budget going into a re-election. Look at all the great things that I've done in this budget that I signed. It's pretty similar to my budget. This is my budget. Instead, he is going to um, spend time pushing back and defending his vetoes and defending uh, his veto of the, the state budget will continue with the, um, the, the impasse. So he also vetoed a House bill, which called on Congress to support a U.S. constitutional amendment to increase regulation over the role of money in elections in government. And uh, the governor... Sununu said it was part of a national campaign designed to overturn constitutional protections of free speech. What he means is it's part of an effort to do something about Citizens United, which uh, ended up as the one of the real uh, challenging Supreme Court decisions, which has led to an onslaught and of us being buried in dark money in politics without transparency and has contributed to the hostile corporate takeover of our federal government. A bill that he did sign was one that affects the presidential uh, primary in that it allows for individuals to be uh, in whichever primary they identify with at that time. So Bill Weld and Bernie Sanders can run as they wish, despite what they may have done previous. So that was when he did Listen, sign. Listen, here's what's going on. Governor Sununu has shown his true colors. He's turned hard right. He is Trump light. He is taking a page from the Donald Trump playbook, which is... I don't care about government. I'll just exact revenge against my political opponents. The Democrats have gotten under his skin. They haven't given him what he wants. He's like a baby who's playing with blocks. And he says, I'm going to take my blocks, folks, 
folks, I'm so folksy, I'm taking my blocks and I'm going home. Well, thanks, Governor Sununu, but that's not the way to run the New Hampshire government. This is Paul Hodes on Off the Record on WKXLAM and FM, streaming live at nhtalkradio.com and brought to you by whoever is going to be our next sponsor. Don't go away, folks. We'll be back after some exciting messages from people who want to be heard on WKXL. Don't go away. Welcome back to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find all our shows archived for your binge listening pleasure. We're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for you 21st century types. And I'm really happy to bring back to Off the Record my good friend and all around smart guy. Matt Robeson, an observer and writer about the political scene and the proprietor of a blog, a more perfect union forum.com. Did I have that right, Matt? You got it right. That's perfect. Well, welcome back to Off the Record. And uh, I know you've been away camping in New Hampshire's beautiful North Country with your kids. It sounds like that was a great time. It was a great time. Always uh, great to be back in the Granite State. Yeah, and uh, there were all kinds of kids' activities, right? Absolutely. Yeah? Did you do log rides and pig rides and face painting and log rolling and all kinds of things? Uh, we had, we explored some uh, New Hampshire caves and trails and lakes. Um, it was uh, it was a, a good American time. Um, as a certain New Hampshire senator would say, we, we had a lot of great American days. <laughs> That's, it's really good to have great American days. You know, what's really nice is to have great American days as a family where you don't necessarily think about the political scene, right? Especially because my thoughts have turned dark of late, and uh, it, it, was good to, uh, it was good to step away from that. But unfortunately... Um, you know, as as per the Godfather movies, I feel like I keep getting sucked back in. Yeah, well, you know, once once you're in the family, you can't get out because there's all kinds of all kinds of things that keep you bound to 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 the to the organization. You know, you you may try to get away, you may think you can get away, but you keep getting sucked back in. Hey, Baba Ganoush, you know. Bada well, bing, bada boom! You get sucked back in. Uh, unfortunately, the uh, the orange mobster who's uh, currently occupying the White House does have a way of uh, sucking us back in, which uh, I think is his number one agenda point um, to, to keep the uh, to keep the the base inflamed and, and keep uh, Americans tuning in. And he does have a perverse talent for one thing, which is. Uh, to make people tune in to the spectacle that he wants and uh, 
here I am falling for it like the rest of America and getting sucked back in. Yeah, well, he's he's had a lot of experience about it. And and while and, and this is kind of on topic, off topic, but um, recently a billionaire hedge fund manager named Jeffrey Epstein was rearrested as his plane landed in Teterboro, New Jersey from Paris, his personal plane. And he was rearrested on charges that essentially he was running sex rings with underage women. Um, now, this is the same Jeffrey Epstein who, about 10 years ago, was pleaded guilty to some charges uh, at the time. The prosecutor-in-chief of those crimes was a fellow named Acosta, who happens to be now the Secretary of Labor, dealing, among other things, with sex trafficking. And there's an uproar uh, in that camp because a lot of people feel that uh, now Secretary Acosta, then who I, I believe was the U.S. attorney in charge of handling the case, let Epstein off with a remarkably light plea deal, which included his ability to go back to work at his hedge fund activities six days a week. Now there's a hue and cry. Acosta has refused to apologize, et cetera, et cetera. Democrats are calling for Acosta to resign. And meanwhile, Donald Trump, the orange cantaloupe himself, uh, is uh, said to have uh, taken rides uh, with Epstein on his plane, two places where apparently there are allegations that um, sex acts with uh, women and or minors took place, including apparently they, there's some allegation of some connection of some activities at Mar-a-Lago, the place where all the orange cantaloupes fun seems to happen now, the the Florida White House. But but. But that's merely an aside because Epstein's activities may ensnare an awful lot of uh, men, prominent men. Bill Clinton is said to have ridden 22 or 23 times on the Acosta uh, plane uh, for fun and frolic. So, so this is a, it's a bipartisan scandal in many ways, and who knows whose names are going to be attributed, but certainly the orange cantaloupe, who's been accused multiple times of sexual misconduct by multiple people, is 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 back in it again. None of it seems to do anything about uh, how people feel about him. They either love him or hate him. Um, but there's something perhaps darker at work because while the Mueller report is in and while Democrats are continuing their investigations and Trump, of course, is stonewalling, he's up against an interesting situation where the New, Han where the New York state legislature has just passed a bill that says we're going to give Trump's state tax returns, which for folks who may may know um, probably mirror a lot of the activity as federal tax returns they're gonna new york has passed a bill that says we're going to give his state tax returns to investigators uh, who have been looking for his federal tax returns without success but but as this kind of controversy swirls and as the great orange cantaloupe uh, himself uh, sits in the white house day after day 
Uh, you uh, have been concerned. You are concerned about the future of the presidency, and you've been having thoughts, dark, deep, I'm afraid bad thoughts about what the orange guy might try to do. I think it's a. You're right on point with with a great setup. The, the, the two, where I think you know you're going with this, and where my head's been in terms of my concerns about what you know I, I'm thinking of as as the potential for a Trump coup in 2020. Um, you know, and where you let off there with the Epstein matter, um, they are connected. Remember, Donald Trump said during the last campaign that he could literally walk down the street in New York, down Fifth Avenue, and shoot someone and lose no support. We're coming off a week where E. Jean Carroll detailed um, what, and she doesn't, she prefers not to refer to what happened to her as a rape, but it is legally a rape allegation against Donald Trump. There are 24 women who have accused Donald Trump of um, all kinds of uh, assault uh, and misconduct. Um, you know, the, the issues continue to mount, and I think the question that is on a lot of Democrats' mind is, is, my gosh, what is it going to take for him to pay some political price? The other question that I think should be on everyone's minds is all of these things fit a pattern that prove that there is it's very hard to figure out what is the line that he would have to cross that would be too far for his supporters. And I would suggest that we've now demonstrated that there is no line that is too far for his supporters. Um, and indeed, it seemed to drag most of the Republican Party along with him, certainly Mitch McConnell and the powers that be. So... It's with that thought in mind, and I think this is where you're going, that I kind of set out to explore, okay, what if Donald Trump loses the election in 2020 and just refuses to leave office? Is that plausible? Is it possible? Could we look at the Constitution, look at the rules um, of elections and, and Congress, and, and figure out, um, could he do that? And my conclusion is, he sure could. How? How would that work? So, and I want to give some credit here to the legal blogger, Neil Buchanan, um, who blogs at uh, a site called Dorfon Law, um, which has a number of uh, prominent legal scholars on it. Um, and he's really been, been exploring this idea uh, from a legal standpoint. I took a more, uh, kind of a more broad-based, since I'm not an attorney, I took a more broad-based look at it. Um, but I, I think everyone who's looked at this question agrees that it starts with a PR campaign. And it, it, indeed, we've already seen this movie. It would start with laying the seeds uh, of the suggestion that the election is, as he put it in 2016, rigged. Um, in some sense, that it's going to be stolen from him legitimately. And that's where we saw him subsequently, after the election, double down on the idea that millions of illegals voted, that really he had won. So that would be the starting point for anything. Casting doubt on whether election results can be trusted. Now, it worked out for him in 2016 because he won in the Electoral College. But you could certainly start to construct a scenario where he paints that picture in the run-up to the 2020 election 
about whether the election results can be viewed as legitimate. And then, and I paint this scenario in my, in my latest piece that's, that's on my blog, and then imagine a Democratic nominee, and I don't think it matters who it is, but for the sake of argument, I chose Elizabeth Warren. Imagine her winning a, you know, fairly uh, narrow um, uh, electoral college victory. What would happen next? What, what's, what, what would happen within the first few minutes of a seeming victory for a Democratic candidate? What's, what's Trump's go-to move? Hmm. Hmm. Well, he'd, uh, of course, start tweeting. His go-to move would be tweets, and he the tweets would escalate the PR campaign, casting doubt. He would refuse to concede. Uh, That's he, right. He, the first thing that would happen would be he'd say, "Well, I'm not leaving because this election was rigged, and uh, and and I'm not conceding." I think you're spot on, and I think that having laid the predicate for that argument carefully in the months beforehand. Um, and I think knowing, seeing the patterns of what's appeared on social media um, from Russian uh, military units uh, and their disinformation campaigns, I think it is very reasonable and, and video analysis experts are already very worried about the potential for realistic video. Just, uh, I suggest to listeners, Google uh, deep fakes um, and you can see examples of uh, seemingly lifelike videos of President Obama saying things that he never said that are all uh, video reconstructions. I think within uh, hours of the election, um, let's say he alleges that millions of illegals voted, like, like he said last time, especially in any closely contested states where there's a recall. I think we would immediately see uh, videos, deep fake videos, purporting to show um, uh, voters who are, who are not uh, American citizens voting that could constri- construct all kinds of skullduggery, alleged skullduggery from the Democrats. And it wouldn't matter whether those were subsequently shown to be fakes, whether all of this was, was just, you know, fulminating, because it would cast doubt. And there would surely be supporters like Mitch McConnell who would uh, rally to the president's side. There would surely be all of Fox News rallying to the president's side, casting doubt on on the election. So that would be stage one. But then I think stage two would play out um, in a different plane. It would play out in the mechanics of how the Electoral College votes in this country are counted. So we're uh, here at Off the Record talking with Matt Robeson, the proprietor, author, uh, scholar, and all-around smart guy of AmorePerfectUnionForum.com. And we are deep into the hypothetical realm of the election of 2020 and what happens if Donald Trump, and I say if, but... That's a word that we use advisedly around here. If Donald Trump decides that he doesn't want to give up if the election goes against him. We're going to take a short break. We're going to hear from all kinds of wonderful folks. And we'll be back with more Off the Record after this. Don't go away.
We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM streaming live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where we are also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes for all of those with fast thumbs and 21st century personal devices. You can find us archived at nhtalkradio.com. Listen to the live stream there. It's a lot of fun. You can binge listen to all your favorite shows. And we're talking with Matt Robeson, the author of a more perfect union forum.com, a smart political guy. And he and I uh, talked in uh, just a little while ago before the break about what happens if Donald Trump decides that he doesn't want to give up if he loses the 2020 election. And uh, we've been through steps A, B, and C. Step A is a public relations campaign that he wages on Twitter in every way he can, as only the great orange cantaloupe knows how to do. A public relations campaign that sets him up and sets up the argument that the election is rigged and it's been stolen from him and millions of illegal people voted and everybody conspired against him. And step two is he refuses to concede. And uh, then, of course, he gets help from the great mushmouth Mitch O'Connell. Well, uh, you know, I think that uh, the president has a point there, and uh, we got to make sure that the legitimate election results happen in this country. And we all know that there's possibility of fraud and voter fraud, and therefore I believe the president has every right to question the results of this election. That was Mitch McConnell, by the way, in anticipating his statement when Donald Trump refuses to concede. And now we got to talk about the Electoral College. So, so how does it work, um, Matt Robeson, if, if Donald Trump and Mitch McConnell are, are starting to gin up fake videos and statements and going on, going on, a, on a tear about not stepping down if he loses the election? Okay. So let's let's game this out. So we started with your very insightful point, drawing the connection to all kinds of proofs that there's literally nothing Donald Trump seemingly can do that makes him pay a political price with his base. So he has no incentive not to try this. I just, you know, I, I, I just want to be clear on this point. People who say, oh, he would never try. Remember. It's just two weeks ago that he joked that he's owed another two years because his first two years were stolen from him by the Mueller report. But let's talk about what would happen next. All right, he's laid the groundwork. Well, the first thing that has to happen is the Electoral College convene. And, you know, as listeners no doubt know, um, presidents are elected through the Electoral College, not by a, a popular vote. There are electors who are actually people that each campaign gets to uh, name um, as part of uh, who would come and and vote for them should uh, they win that state. And the Electoral College, uh, in this case, would convene on December 14th. Um, what is a little less known about the Electoral College is that um, there's a long history in the U.S. of the fact that electors, they're people. They literally cast a vote. And they are not always required to cast a vote in accordance with how their state has voted. Uh, in fact, in 2016, seven electors 
and they voted for someone other than who they were pledged to vote for based on their state results. Five of them flipped away from Hillary Clinton. Um, and so I, I in, in my piece on my blog where I explored all this, I looked at one particular scenario. I don't think the numbers matter. This is just illustrative. But let's say you can construct a very realistic scenario where Pennsylvania kind of presents the margin of victory. Warren has won 289 to 249 in the Electoral College. And now, what does the Trump campaign need to do? If they can flip 20 electors on December 14, 2020, and remember, they don't have to flip them from Warren, in this case, just hypothetically, to Trump. They just need to get them to vote for anyone else. Mm. Then her vote total falls under 270, which is the magic number to elect a president in our country. Mm. And now the vote is, is sent to the House of Representatives, not mm. the House that would be convened after the 2020 election, the current House of Representatives. So I'll stop there. That is step one. But just to, just to recall for people, the daisy chain starts with set doubt in the minds of the American public, check, and now full-on assault on the electors in the Electoral College. See if you can flip 20 votes in this case, could be more, could be less, away from the winning Democratic nominee. Ma- but there are other things that, that they can do after that. But that's, that's kind of step two. Robinson, Matt, this uh, Vladimir Putin calling. Very, very nice to be talking with you. I, I appreciate your great thinking. You are one smart fellow. I read your forum all time. And I, I'm, I'm calling my friend, uh, Comrade Donald Trumpeltinsky, because I believe that you are a very, very smart gaming system. And uh, I don't need to do anything anymore because you have laid out a perfect plan for my buddy Donald Trumpeltinsky, Comrade Donald, I call him. Very, very cute. He's such a cute boy. I call Donald and I say, Donald, you should be talking to Matt Robinson because Matt Robinson, you know, is very, very, very smart boy. And, and he's right there in Amerikansky, uh, in, in, you know, close to you. You can go and talk to him. You, you, know, you should hire him to game your system because he got the whole thing figured out. I no longer need to be involved at all as I was, you know. I was thinking I might have to interfere, but no longer do I have to do anything. No denial from you, no trouble for you. You and I, we just go our way. We make our oil deals. We make billions of dollars. And Matt Robinson, he figures out how to get to you. So goodbye, uh, Matt Robinson. And uh, that's what I'm going to say to Comrade Donald Trumpeltinsky. I think he'll be very happy to consult you at big dollars, big, 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 big dollars. Um, now, I, I would say to you, knowing Donald Trumpeltinsky, please get all money up front. Because if you do not, he won't pay you. I mean, that that's just the way he works. You know, he's... He promised big money, but he never pay anybody because uh, mostly he's bankrupt. But that's another story for another day. When he's through with White House, he's no longer bankrupt. He's got better brand than he had before, which is, of course, what he won. So, so that was that was the the appreciative thought of. Vladimir Putin. We've had visits on the show so far from Mitch McConnell and Vladimir Putin, um, who are noting with appreciation your smart thinking. So we flip the Electoral College, um, and who knows? I mean, with billions of dollars, you could flip almost anything, and it goes to the House of Representatives. But if it goes to the currently constituted House of Representatives, the currently constituted House of Representatives has a majority of 
Democrats. Ah, now, they do they? Do they? Aha. Well, so now, unfortunately, <laughs> um, oh, you we mean get to our, our quirky, our delightfully quirky U.S. Constitution, which I revere, um, but um, has some 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 quirks. Um, kind of like all all the people in your life who you love, you love them. They have some quirks. Our Constitution is is the same way. So, right, okay. So, Plan A for Trump in 2020 is let's see if we can flip some electors and throw this into the House. Or, I mean, shoot, if we can convince them just to flip all the way to Trump, then I win outright. We're done. But yeah. you have several fallback options. Yeah. So once you get under our Constitution, once you get the election, if, if no candidate emerges with 270 votes as a majority in the Electoral College, and you get the election in what's called a, a contingent uh, election in the U.S. House of Representatives, the vote is not by majority. The vote is by majority of state delegations. That's and just to just to unpack that, what that means is each delegation from a state, that's all the elected representatives uh, from that state in the U.S. House, gets a single vote. New Hampshire, who has two U.S. representatives, they're both currently Democrats, gets one vote. California, which has uh, 54 or so representatives, gets one vote. It just so happens that currently Republicans hold a majority in 26 of the 50 state delegations. Two states happen to be tied. So the, the take-home here for your listeners is if we end up with an election in the U.S. House of Representatives, a contingent election, it is a surefire Trump victory. Republicans actually hold the majority there. But that is only one of the fallbacks. Um, there are still others. Shall I go on? Which section of the Constitution are you reading from? Do you remember? Oh, gosh. No, I am not a constitutional lawyer. Um, I, I do I'm, not I'm, recall. I'm, but this is spelled out in Section 3 of the U.S. Code huh. on how, uh, and how these contingent elections unfold. Oh my! Because I'm looking, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I'm just riffing through the Constitution here as we're talking because, I'm, I'm speed reading the Constitution actually, trying to find that provision, and I'm not, I'm not, it, it's not jumping out at me, but that's, you know, I have, I'm not reading every word, but, that's a fascinating provision, one which I have never, focused on. Now I don't hold myself out as a constitutional scholar, but. In the case that we are talking about where the president has followed steps one, two, and three and flipped some electors and it's flipped over to the House, that is a fascinating, fascinating kind of thought. Because and if you want to know, yeah. it's Article 2, Section 1, Clause 3 Hang of on the U.S. Constitution second. as modified by the 12th Amendment. Ah, the Twelfth Amendment, of course. So let me just, let's, uh, section, to, Article 2. Um, oh, I see. 
Make yeah. them, yes. And the votes shall be counted. And there shall be the president of the. And then the has only two, one of them for them, no having them for them. But it shall be the rep having one vote. Exactly. But it gets worse. This, is, gets worse. this is Article, article 3. I, now, I don't want to take your, your listeners into the U.S. Code. I, I can just paraphrase what happens next because it's not great news. For Democrats in this case, so so let's say that um, you it doesn't work. Let's say you don't quite get the faithless elector gambit to work, um, and you you can't throw things into the house. Well, what happens then? Um, the votes of the electoral college are officially counted. And in this case, it's a set date. In this case, it happens to fall on January 6th, 2021. And what happens is uh, the votes in the Electoral College need to be certified. Um, and so there is a procedure laid out in Section 3 of the U.S. Code where any you need one from the Senate, and one from the House. If you have one objector from each body, then you go into a special session, it's debated for two hours. And so if you are Mitch McConnell, let's say, you and some other Trump acolyte in the House could object to one particular state and the counting of their electoral votes. You could object to all of them. Now, th this is where this is where the chambers would actually do a majority vote. So it wouldn't necessarily work for you to use this gambit, although you certainly could try it and would. And you would probably try it because it would set up yet another gambit that you could try. The votes themselves are certified by the president of the Senate. The president of the Senate happens to be the sitting vice president of the United States, who happens to be Mike Pence. And I am not a sufficient constitutional scholar to know what would happen if he were to simply refuse to declare the results because of the controversy in any one state or in all of the states or the objections that had been lodged thus far. What would probably happen is that you would be dragged into constitutionally unprecedented murky territory. And what, under our system is the body that decides on those kinds of constitutional questions. Mm, the Supreme Court. And would you say, given your deep insights as a former congressman, that the U.S. Supreme Court is currently friendly to the Democratic cause? Let me give. Let me think about that for a minute. <laughs> let me just think about that. Uh, no. So... Look, I mean, there are some people who are court watchers um, who have said and, and, and will say, look, Chief Justice John Roberts, and, and you saw this in the uh, census citizenship question decision uh, a few weeks ago, is very concerned about the standing of the court long term, the ability of the court to continue to fulfill its constitutional role. He is very leery of them being viewed, especially in the wake of Bush v. Gore 2000, as uh, another partisan body. So 
yes, there's a little protection there. If there's, you know, if there's this kind of a, a controversy, maybe Justice Roberts would step in and try to put the kibosh on these kinds of maneuvers. But that is an awfully thin last line of defense. And with a Republican-appointed majority on that court, and let's all pray for the health of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg over the next year and a half, it is a very thin line that is protecting us from this kind of maneuver. And I'll just finish by going right back to where you started this conversation. Is there anyone who thinks that Donald Trump feels that he would pay a political price for trying this? Mm. I would suggest that he does not. I suggest that he has no disincentive to try this kind of maneuver. And I guess my challenge that I'm putting out there to the world in, in writing this piece is find the holes in any of these routes that I've laid out that the Trump campaign could try. Hmm. We've been talking to Matt Robeson, the proprietor of a more perfect union forum dot com, a blog about politics. Matt is one smart guy, and we have been hypothesizing about the path for Donald Trump to steal a second term if he loses the election and how he's helped by the U.S. Constitution. Matt, thanks for frightening every listener and off the record with Paul Hogan's. I ruined my own family vacation this way, so only too happy to do that for all your listeners. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. Don't go away. We'll be back to wrap up after this.